Blog Talk Radio.
Mamba Mubiai, Mulubawaji Tanta. Wawaka Yeme, Mwena Menshi. Naomi Azikaway. Welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikaway. Uh, today is Saturday, August 28th, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We would like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of our program. Later on in our program, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire reports. We'll have dispatches on the announcement by the South African government that it has vaccinated 14 million of its population against the COVID-19 pandemic. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, eastern city of Benin, there are reports of another massacre carried out uh, by uh, the so-called Allied Democratic Forces. A boat used uh, for smuggling migrants has been recovered off the coast of the West African state of Senegal. And Ethiopia is expressing its satisfaction with the outcomes of a United Nations Security Council meeting earlier this week. In the second hour, we continue our month-long focus on Black August with a rare archive recording of a panel discussion on the role of women 
and the struggle against fascism from July of 1969. Finally, uh, we listened to a briefing uh, from the African Center for Disease Control and Prevention uh, that was delivered uh, just two days ago. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Right now, we'll move into our musical interlude, and uh, we're going to feature again uh, the classic uh, modern band, Les Amazons d'Afrique. Uh, this is uh, a live concert at the Philharmonie de Paris. Let's listen in. Sadakana, I'm a big 
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, and uh, that was the music of Le Amazon d'Afrique, uh, live at the Philharmonie de Paris, and uh, that is a all-African women's orchestra performing from various uh, states around uh, the African continent, and uh, that is, of course, very uh, innovative and forward-looking compositions and arrangements. Uh, right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. And our lead story deals with the public health situation in the Republic of South Africa. The country has managed uh, to vaccinate 14% of its adult population with more than 11.9 million inoculations administered. Uh, government uh, set a target to vaccinate 67% of the population to reach the point where enough people are immune to the coronavirus to prevent it spreading unchecked. The most populous provinces are leading the charge in administering the shots. Hauteng uh, has over 3 million residents inoculated, followed by KwaZulu-Natal with 2 million and the Western Cape at 1.9 million. Uh, the new Pfizer doses come as vaccine numbers were lagging across the country. And as provinces like the Western Cape and KwaZulu-Natal continue to battle an extended resurgence of COVID-19 infections. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, eastern region uh, in Benin, 19 civilians in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo were burned and hacked to death on Friday by Ugandan Islamist rebels, a local official said on Saturday. Uh, Fourteen bodies were found on Saturday. Kakulu uh, Kalunga uh, told uh, the international press a local chief said they were discovered uh, by uh, Red Cross workers uh, who went into nearby forests to look uh, for uh, those missing after the attack on Kazanzi village uh, in the Benin territory of North Kivu. Benin lies uh, at the heart of an area where the Allied Democratic Forces, the ADF, linked to the Islamic State, have mounted deadly attacks in spite of emergency security measures by President Felix Chesakede. Uh The 19 people were killed by the rebels who plagued the territory of Benin. Uh, the ADF, uh, Kalunga, uh, said this, adding that the victims were killed 
uh, by bladed weapons and fire, and that houses were also set ablaze. In a statement uh, yesterday, Maliki Bulala, a spokesperson for the New Civil Society organization in Winsori, uh, deplored the absence of military personnel around Benin. Regional military sources contacted uh, by the international press earlier today did not immediately comment. Since May, the provinces of North Kivu and Ituri have been under a state of siege, uh, replacing civilian authorities with army and police officers to fight armed groups. Earlier this month, a contingent of U.S. Special Operations Forces arrived in the area to help the Congolese Army in their fight against the ADF, uh, U.S. and Congolese sources said at the time. The size of the contingent uh, was unknown, but around a dozen soldiers could be seen in official photos of a meeting between Chesakete and a delegation led by U.S. Ambassador to the Democratic Republic of Congo, Mike Hammer. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. In other news, uh, dozens of people remained missing and feared dead uh, earlier today after a wooden boat capsized off the coast of the West African state of Senegal. This is the latest tragedy in a country where untold thousands have tried to migrate to Europe by sea. Crews rescued eight Senegalese and three Gambians overnight and found the body of one person who had drowned, though at least 60 people were believed to have been on board at the time, according to Colonel Maktor Senegalese migrants have long risked their lives at sea aboard small fishing boats for a chance to reach Europe, and the economic hardships brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic have led to a resurgence of attempts. Many are embarking uh, for the Canary Islands, the Spanish archipelago in the Atlantic Ocean off the northwestern coast of Africa, uh, where arrivals have increased by 750% uh, last year. At least 849 people died this year on the route to the Canary Islands, more than four times as many as the previous years, according to a report uh, by the United Nations Migration Agency. Those traveling by sea have often been refused visas for European countries, but take the risk of a perilous voyage for the chance to earn enough money to support their families back home. Senegalese authorities have tried to discourage the efforts, even prosecuting the fathers of some who attempted to migrate. The boats, though, often set off in the dark of night, and family members only learn of the voyage. Uh, sometimes later. And uh, finally, uh, in regard to the current situation in the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia, according to an article uh, from the Ethiopian Herald uh, written by Mulatu Balachu, uh, the federal government's military response uh, to the TPLF clique is perpetuated by the latter's destructive activities, and the matter is solely an internal issue of a sovereign state uh, that the United Nations Security Council has no mandate to table, a renowned historian uh, has said. This same report goes on to say that a celebrated scholar and researcher of Islamic history, Adim Kamil, uh, who is an assistant professor, told local media in Ethiopia that the United Nations Security Council is mandated to deal with threats to global peace and security 
and not to abruptly meddle in the domestic affairs of sovereign countries. The researchers further uh, stated uh, that tabling Ethiopia's issue for the eighth time indicates global actors' conspiracy to revive the terrorist enterprise from the grave and continued its agenda of weakening the Ethiopian government and destabilizing the country. Throughout history, Ethiopia helps its neighbors and other countries to solve internal problems through peaceful manners and not meddle in their internal affairs. Ethiopia is also a nation that has been carrying out successful peacekeeping missions under the umbrella of the United Nations and the organization stands in, in the wrong side and exaggerating the conflict in the northern part of the country, Adim added. He went on to say that, quote, failed to stabilize Yemen and Syria. The United Nations Security Council still made an attempt to interfere in Ethiopia, and its move is not only inappropriate, but also reveals the conspiracy against the reform government that the West finds to be too self-reliant, too arm-twisting, unquote. Noting the people and government of Ethiopia know well how to handle an intensified pressure, he expressed optimism that Ethiopians will overcome both local and foreign enemies conclusively. Sociology assistant professor at New York's Ionia College, Darisi Gadishu, uh, said for his part that the United Nations Security Council meeting has ended without common agreement like before regarding the Ethiopia's Tigray conflict, pointing out that humanitarian crises happening in Amhara and Afar states has not gotten enough attention and condemnation from Western powers. The experts stress that the latter are overwhelmed uh, by the Tigray situation to rescue their confidant and reinstate a client. Western partiality and hypocrisy demonstrate itself by putting unwarranted pressure on uh, the legitimate government and backing the TPLF's engagement to escalate the crisis, Therese remarked. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswise segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. We want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Uh, since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. Uh, the Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African. you like to find Newswire? Some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go uh, to our website, and that's at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, August 28th, uh, 2021, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African-Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African-Journal. And uh, we'll take a musical break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. (laughs) 
to the conclusion of uh, the annual commemoration of Black August, uh, which recognizes the historical struggle of African people against enslavement, uh, colonialism, capitalism, neocolonialism, and imperialism. Uh, we, of course, uh, have been looking over the last uh, two programs at the uh, history of the Black Panther Party, and we're going to listen to a rare archival broadcast uh, from July of 1969 at the United Front Against Fascism Conference, which was held in Oakland, California, uh, between July 18th and July 20th of 1969. The conference uh, was led by the Black Panther Party. Uh, however, it was attended uh, by many people uh, within the uh, left, uh, new left, and um, student movements, uh, civil liberties movements, women's movements uh, throughout the United States. And uh, we're going to listen to a panel uh, which uh, focuses on the role of women in the struggle against fascism in 1969. Uh, let's listen in. Hi, I'm Brian DeShazer, director of the Pacifica Radio Archives, and welcome to From the Vault, our weekly series that takes our history out of the vault and onto the radio. On this edition of From the Vault, we celebrate Women's History Month by presenting a panel from the 1969 three-day Black Panther Party conference entitled Women Speak Out Against Fascism. For too long, the victims of exploitation and repression and racism have been asked to pay the price to maintain a system which rewards and promotes the real criminals in society to positions of great wealth and power. Again, organize, organize, and resist. Power to the people. In July of 1969, the Black Panther Party invited a broad coalition of groups to participate in a three-day conference called the United Front Against Fascism. They invited famed attorney William Kunstler, Oakland mayor and future 13-term congressman Ron Dellums, and other luminaries of the day. But what sets this conference apart from mainstream events of the time was the inclusion of people who worked every day to help end oppression in their community. So while conference attendees would hear the analysis of fascism from the likes of Ron Dellums, Racism becomes the convenient vehicle by which fascism may become an accomplished fact in this country. They would also hear from relatively unknown speakers like Carol Thomas from the Southern Christian Education Fund. Because of the economic and legal powerlessness of women, they have little or no control over their lives. Their sons, their brothers, and their husbands are disposed of by the ruling classes either as cannon fodder in war, in which these same people are asked to make total commitments and give their lives, while the fascist capitalists reap profits. Today we focus on the panel, Women Speak Out Against Fascism. The term fascism was never clearly defined in this panel discussion in the same way, say, Naomi Wolf, for example, outlined ten easy steps to change a democratic nation into a fascist state. But this was an opportunity for women from different perspectives to illuminate areas in our society where inequalities ran along class, gender, and oftentimes racial lines. Event organizers invited Marlene Dixon, a Ph.D. of sociology from UCLA, as the keynote speaker. But she deferred a majority of her time to the women who had first-person experience with injustice in their community. 
Keep in mind that this panel was recorded in 1969, at a time when the FBI's COINTELPRO program was infiltrating and disrupting groups like the Black Panther Party, who were providing valuable services such as breakfast programs, health services, and educational classes to the underserved community. We begin with Black Panther chairwoman Elaine Brown reading a letter written by recently imprisoned Black Panther leader Erica Huggins, now a professor of women's studies at the California State University, East Bay. I waste very few words of my own because Erica said just about anything there is to say regarding the fascist treatment not only of herself but of all the, <coughs> excuse me, the political prisoners. This was written in Niantic Prison on July 8th of this year. Long live the united front against fascism, down with the reactionaries of all kinds. It is impossible to say what I feel now. It would take too long and the state doesn't offer enough paper. But because none of us can be with you, I will try. I can envision as I write the people that will hear this. I can see their faces. I can feel their warmth, the warmth that comrades often have for each other. I can also see the faces of some who always appear among the people, the worried, empty, brutal faces of the agents of fascism. Worried because they know that people, poor people, oppressed people, gather together but for one reason, to analyze the conditions of their oppression and wipe it out. Empty because they have no feeling for the masses of people, for the souls of the revolutionaries we have lost, for the starving babies of this country and the world, and brutal because they will fight to the last ditch to destroy the revolutionary fervor of the people. They all continue to run back, oinking to the oppressors about the people's plans to rise up. They fail, however, to realize that the masses have boundless creative power, and no matter how they kick ass, beat us, kill us, or jail us, the people will carry on. I see the faces of change, I hope that many minds are open to what is happening. I know that many ears have been listening to the foul utterances America spits out at the world. We have listened too long, and the bitch, her mouth reeking of death, says, we have thoroughly oppressed our people at home. We are succeeding at keeping Vietnam in a state of decay. We are trampling on Africa. We are destroying South America, making bigger and better alliances with Russia. We have only to wait for Mao to die and we will be the world power, and then we will place our murder on the moon. America is plotting universal imperialism. It will be the same everywhere, first Coca-Cola, then Oscar Mayer Wieners, and then the troops. That's right on, Erica. The people cannot take this. We cannot allow fascist fanatics to continue to deprive us of our human rights. We must organize and form an everlasting united front against capitalism, against imperialism, against class distinctions, against racism, against fascism. We cannot allow concessions from the federal government for the continual harassment and unwarranted brutality of the people. We cannot allow our children, be they black, Mexican, Indian, Japanese, Chinese, or white, to be miseducated and degraded in America's degenerate school system. We cannot allow any more lynchings, bombing, and racial ignorance down south or up south. We cannot, we cannot allow unions any longer to drive the working class. The working class must drive the unions. 
Our fight must be endless to organize the workers of this country, to overhaul and change every assembly line and every factory. We cannot allow medical services in our communities to remain inadequate. We need more hospitals, more doctors, more nurses, and less insistence on medicinal genocide or birth control. We cannot allow the reformists to clean up the surface while the inner structure rots. We need a revolution. All of our thoughts, each of our actions should lead us to one goal, the emptying of the that fills the bowels of this country. We can no longer allow the senselessness of anarchy and arbitrary destruction. We need no more impulsive, opportunistic movements, groups, or political parties that endure on socialistic rhetoric. We need socialism in practice. Well. But in times of difficulty, we cannot lose sight of our achievements. We must see the bright future for the people and pick up our courage. We realize that there are people that support us and that however long we remain here, we serve as a catalytic agent to move the people forward. We only ask that you realize who your real friends and your real enemies are. We must draw a clear line of demarcation between the oppressors and the oppressed, between the imperialists and the internationalists, between the pigs and the people. Who sits next to you? All power to the oppressed people, Long live the people's revolutionary struggle. Long live the Minister of Defense. Free all political prisoners. It's Erica Huggins. All power to the people. That was Black Panther Chairwoman Elaine Brown from 1969, reading a letter written by recently imprisoned Black Panther leader Erica Huggins. Erica was arrested with Black Panther founder Bobby Seale on conspiracy charges, which were dropped two years after her arrest. Here is Women Speak Out Against Fascism moderator and Black Panther Party official Marie W. Johnson to introduce each guest. Sisters and brothers, I greet you with a sisterly love on behalf of us here on the panel. Uh, I hope you didn't come here hoping that we are going to entertain you because we just don't have the time. The people who will be speaking on this panel has not been chosen because of their revolutionary rhetorics. They were chosen because of their correct practice. I'd like to introduce you, starting with this beautiful sister to my left. She is Sister Carol Thomas, who is representing Seth, Skiff. Seated next to her is another beautiful sister, Sister Penny Nakatsu. She'll be talking to us about the problems of Asian people. We had hopes the native sister from America would have been with us. If Sister Deanne de Ryan is in the audience, we would love to have her among us. We have another sister who was detained because of delay of plane and is on the way at this very moment. So it doesn't matter the time, but how well you utilize it. And after all, like we should really be out there with the masses. 
continue with the introduction. On my right here, a beautiful sister called Sister Evelyn Harris. She'll be speaking about the problems of the poorest of the poor, the recipients versus fascism. Next to her is seated another sister that's righteous. She's armed with correct theory and practice. None other than our own sister, Roberta Alexander. <laughs> seated next to Sister Roberta is another beautiful sister whom you get to know as well as I have. Her name, Sister Carol Henry. I'm Marie Johnson. Without much ado, I'd like to, uh, first of all, set the tone to let you know that since we are equipped with correct ideology and correct practice, we know that fascism is terror. Fascism is genocide. It is the most vicious child of dying imperialism. It is most important for women to be able to recognize fascism for exactly what it is. Every day, we are being used as tools by the avaricious businessman to perpetrate fascism upon all of us, as well as the exploitation of people of foreign lands. This panel hopes to arouse a sense of urgency with purpose among women. We got no time for rhetoric. There's too much to be done. We must get it together. Heretofore, women had been thought of as merely being content to remain in a prone position. Well, things ain't what they used to be, and they never will be. Fascism is being escalated upon all the people. We do not wish to separate ourselves as a separate entity. We came from the people, and by our deeds, by our correct actions, for the people, we hope to become that other half, not only of men, but of the masses of our people. It is up to every woman to join their sisters and brothers who are already in the struggle for survival. Survival. Women must acquire correct thoughts and perform correct daily actions. Daily deeds in a correct manner will liberate the minds of the women. There is no need to demand liberation. Get it together. Get the correct ideology. Put it into correct practice. And you'll be recognized by what you do, not just for the sake of being a woman, because we are of the people. We must not wait for fascism to vamp on us personally. An injury to one is an injury to all. You better believe it. Fascism is like a contagious disease. It terrorizes, and quite often it kills us. Remember little sister from uh, Nebraska? She was only 14 years old. Then we also have, uh, facing a long prison sentence, Sister Erica Huggins. Brutality, fascism, she really knew it. 
She went through the same thing and is going through the same thing that Sister Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman. <laughs> Along with Sister Huggins, we mustn't forget our brothers, New York 21. We never forget Brother Linscombe, Brother James Rector, Brother George Baskett, our own Brother Bobby Hutton, Bunchy Carter, and the late Brother Huggins of Sister Huggins. I have seen the mothers and the sisters. I have felt their pain. I have seen the young men coming from Vietnam limbless. They relate to us. So I would ask the audience, don't dig on time, but dig on good deeds. So before I take up much more of your time, uh, the sisters here have much more than I could ever say. I'd like to first present Sister Roberta. Please come. Right on. I'd like to start off by saying, brothers and sisters, that there is a struggle going on right now. Um, our topic up here today is to talk about um, women versus fascism, the role of women in the movement. There was, there was some commotion here, and I'd like to address myself uh, briefly to that commotion. I think it's significant. First of all, there's a struggle now going on in the Black Panther Party. A lot of people around the country are confused about what's happening now in the Black Panther Party around the woman question, around the role of women in the Black Panther Party. This confusion has been created and added to, added to with the demagogy of the bourgeoisie, with their Larry Powells and their McClellan committees. They're adding to the confusion of the people, and the Black Panther Party now wants to stand up forward before all of you and explain a little bit of what's happening. We talk about divisions among the people and how the ruling class uses those divisions to weaken the people and to weaken the people's struggles. We are now faced with a rising tide of fascism in this country and the people have to be united in order to fight this tide. Huey P. Newton says, as the uh, brother earlier said uh, tonight, that we have to limit our bickering as much as possible between the movement and make our concentration upon the enemy. This is correct. And we must recognize the enemy when we see it. This is also very important, because if we don't know what the enemy is, then we're in bad shape. Now, on the question of male chauvinism, on the question of male supremacy, this is a true problem in our society and reflects capitalist society, period. Women are placed in a particular role and they're expected to stay in that role. We have problems in the party, that's true, because we, we are part of a society and if we were to say we didn't have no problems, we'd be lying to the people. We're not going to lie to the people. In order for the people to understand the question, we'll tell the truth. For the last several months in our party, 
there have been struggles over this question. And the struggles have, 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 have gone through the whole gamut of possible you know, problems. They've gone through women leadership, women being able to be armed, defend themselves as well as the brothers, whether or not the women do all the typing, or whether or not they also take part in the armed self-defense and the running of the offices and not just behind the typewriters. And it even goes down to the sexual levels, you know, whether or not the women are supposed to do so-and-so for the cause of the revolution, etc. And there have been a hell of a lot of distortions about the party's position on precisely this point. There's been a lot of struggle in the party, and at times this struggle has become so principled that we think more we have thought more, this has been corrected, we think more about the contradictions between the women and the men in the party, between the sisters and the brothers, than we do about the pigs. Now there is a problem there, because that cannot be allowed. The pigs are out to murder us. The sisters and the brothers are class sisters and brothers. The sisters and brothers in a struggle. And the party has addressed itself to this problem and is now being resolved, and is being resolved correctly. It's being resolved through an intense struggle among the party. The women, as Eldridge Cleaver said, are our other half. They're not our weaker half. They're not our stronger half. But they are our other half. Right on. All right power to the people. Power to the people. That was Black Panther member Roberta Alexander from the 1969 panel, Women Speak Out Against Fascism. Being a woman, I have to correct myself. We got a beautiful sister sitting up on that end that flew in and got in here oh, about an hour and a half ago from Los Angeles. Many of you are familiar with her. Her name is Sister Marlene Dixon from Los Angeles. So we'll follow the, the program in order. The next sister will be Sister Carol Henry. Greetings, revolutionaries, brothers and sisters, all oppressed people. Yes, I said brothers and sisters, men and women. That sounds quite different from the animalistic terms that we often use to one another. Bitch, slut. Cow, chick, nanny goat, and or oftentimes broad hole for those of you whose vocabulary have advanced to that complexity of decadence. I want to talk to you, and I only have limited time. And I don't want any more provocateurs standing up and running that kind of garbage. Um, the acceptance of these crude terms, not only by the chauvinistic man, but by the woman herself, is a clear indication 
that respect and objective estimation of one's character is lost. Lost in an avalanche of insecurities and subjective egotistical dispositions. Women, women, yeah, all you women, those of you who even shouted out, we are alienated, alienated from the word go. We have uh, been alienated from basic humane relationships, humanitarian contact. We have been alienated from the other half, men. We have been alienated from our children, from ourselves. We have been separated by the tools of this fascist government, the bloody tools that have categorized us and deprived us socially, politically, and economically. And these are the same bloody tools that oppress us racially. Women, and especially white women who know so little of their oppression, women have been exploited mentally and physically by the color of their skin and the shape of their breasts. All I saw uh, when I was a little girl was rosy cheek, straight-haired, white-skinned, blue-eyed baby dolls and sex-symbolized commercials. And from infancy, this uh, creating inside of me whitewash criterions, making me feel that if you're white, you're right, and if you're black, get back. This feeling of inferiority is just one aspect to alienation. And the other aspect is superiority. Both of these manifestations of struggle align with the contradictions between the oppressed and the oppressors. In a fascist society, these contradictions are expressed through racial antagonism. Among the demented minds of racist women, the struggle is in competition against other women for castrated Friends and women in particular, in unison, we must let our battle cry be heard. We will no longer tolerate the arrogant separatism and magnanimous distortions arising from any kind of discrimination. We will no longer, we will no longer tolerate fascist tactics to attain finance capital through the blood, sweat, and tears of the people. The pig uses any means necessary, any means necessary to exploit, dehumanize, separate, and conquer. Down with the pig, fascist pig oppressor. Long live the people's liberation struggle. Long live Hugh P. Newton and Eldridge Cleaver. All power to the people. Dare to struggle, dare to win. All power to the people. To the people. Right on. Wow.
Continuing on in the order, I wish now to introduce you to our sister, Penny Nakasu. On the question of male supremacy and male chauvinism, as an Asian woman, I can speak well and long. I can speak well and long of the heroic women who have died combating racism and imperialism. I could speak of women like Iva Taguri Dakino, who spent 16 years in an American racist prison for a crime for which she had no part in. I could speak of a sister who died in the 1950s struggles in Tokyo, died in the struggle against the re-ratification of the United States-Japan Security Pact. And I could speak well and long of the heroic struggles of our courageous Vietnamese sisters, <laughs> whose example I hope all women can well follow and learn from. But I will not. What I came here to speak of today is a story that many of you may not know of, may have forgotten, may not remember. The story begins in 1942. Many of the elements of the story are duplicated here today and now in the year 1969. The dates 1942, 1950, 1969, taken together as a sum total, equate American fascism today. In case many of you have not caught on to what I'm referring to, I'm speaking of the incarceration of more than 110,000 people, human beings, for the crime of, ha of having yellow faces, of having Asian names in World War II. The story goes like this. There was no law. There was no 1950 McCarran Internal Security Act at that time to put my people, our people, into the uh, what was then euphemistically termed relocation camps. There were 10 of those camps. I will not call them relocation camps. I will not call them detention camps. I will call them the concentration camps that they were and are and still exist today. I come from a generation of children born in concentration camps. Many of these places you will find no longer exist on the map. They were born in, in places with names like Manzanar, Tule Lake, Topaz, Rower, and on and on. In 1942, a presidential mandate issued by President Roosevelt empowered the racist military under the leadership of General DeWitt to incarcerate 110,000 people, more than two-thirds of whom were American citizens. 
Many of these people remained in these concentration camps for the duration of the war. All of them received between 24 and 48 hour notice to report to the nearest military authority, to report their belongings, to dispose of their beloved possessions within the span of 24 and 48 hours. How generous, how magnanimous our government was, how magnanimous our government will be when it calls on us to report. But when it calls on us, we will not be sitting in our homes talking. We will be prepared to act. We will be prepared to move. The lesson that I hope we can learn from 1942 is not to wait, not to wait until we have positive, irrevocable proof of the racism and the all-encompassing determination of our monopolistic, capitalistic system to suppress all movements, all peoples who will work for social change, who will work for liberation, who will work for division of fascism, and imperialism. Thank you. Power to the people! Power to the people! Tell me that the sun belongs to you and should surround you. When I turn to look, I see they've snatched the sun from all around you. You are listening to Women Speak Out Against Fascism, a Black Panther Party conference held in 1969 on From the Vault for Women's History Month. For more information or to get a copy of this program or the other programs in our series, visit us online at fromthevaultradio.org or call us toll-free at one 800 735 you can research our collection at PacificaRadioArchives.org. And now back to our program. You worry about liberty because you've been denied. Well, I think that you're mistaken, or then you must have lied. people that were on this panel not only work at the stuff, they have the experience, they live it. From the Sudden Christian Educational Fund, I'd like to introduce to you Sister Carol Thomas, who will be talking about the women and some of her experiences. Good evening, brothers and sisters in struggle. Uh, because of the economic and legal powerlessness of women 
they have little or no control over their lives. They have little or no control over their children or what happens to them. Their sons, their brothers, and their husbands are disposed of by the ruling classes either as cannon fodder in war, in which these same people are asked to make total commitments and give their lives, while the fascist capitalists reap profits. Or they see their sons, their husbands, as workers in an industrial machine, which is not for the welfare of the workers, but for the profit again of the fascist capitalists. Mostly, what I want to talk about is some of the experiences that I had when we women in Gainesville, Florida, came together around certain issues. First of all, in the summer of 1967, the welfare mothers, the mothers on welfare, many of them organized into a welfare rights union. They went to the welfare department and demanded the necessities of life. They were only getting 66% of what was supposed to be basic needs. Uh, the pigs came. That was their response. We went back two weeks later after having presented our needs. Again, the pigs came. The women then took their requests to the county commission in Gainesville, and the reaction to that was to have the police come out and pick me up as uh, an agitator and warn me that, that these women, if they continued to go to the county commission and agitate in the way they were doing for the necessities of life for their children, uh, we're going to start a riot. I don't think we quite realized our power at that time. We happened to have a, we happened to win a few concessions, like you know, a, uh, a food stamp plan or, or a commodity distribution program, but the power still remained with the pigs. Later, well, for for several years, uh, I had heard women had come to me out of the city jail and said they were being sexually molested by jailers in there. I took this information on their behalf very naively to the police department, thinking they were going to do something about it. I then took it to, again, very naively to a human relations commission, and they expressed the proper horror, and it was all covered up. None of the women that brought me these stories were willing to verify any of this in writing for fear of reprisals by people in the power structure whom the pigs represented. In 1967, we had some beautiful sisters come out of that jail, mad as hell. <laughs> they were getting tuned in to who they were, both racially and as women, and the power that they could command. We wrote up an affidavit, which a brother, Jack Dawkins, then read to the city commission after the women had organized and gotten their sisters to the city commission and many of the brothers also. Jack Dawkins read the affidavit 
and the immediate reaction was to cite him for contempt before the city commission. Failing this, they called for a grand jury investigation of practices into the city jail where there were no matrons and where women had almost died, several of them had almost died having miscarriages when the jailers didn't feel like walking up and attending to them. Well, we got the people there. The grand jury investigation was called for. The women came to the grand jury investigation and they tried to testify. Instead of allowing the truth to come out, uh, their relationships with various organizers in the community was pried into. Dawkins and I had written a paper analyzing what we expected to happen. In other words, nothing. No action. There was going to be a big whitewash. Well, to show you the way the pigs worked, the state's attorney Xeroxed a copy of the paper and took it into the courtroom and said that we had taken it in. And he arrested us for contempt of court. We spent four, mu four months and six months, well, yeah, in jail. The conviction just has been recently overturned. But while we were in jail, we did a bit of organizing. The men organized the men's cell block. The women organized the women's cell block. And we found we had such tremendous strength in the motto, one for all and all for one. And every confrontation we had, that's the way we carried it out. We got piddly little things like, you know, maybe heat when it was freezing. We got a change in diet, a little less starch. We had to practically make a riot in the jail to get sick prisoners to the hospital which we did. Uh, the very threat of our organizing made the jailers adhere to the law. The juveniles were to be kept separately from the adults. But again, well, also, before this was over, prisoners with problems were sending them to the women's cell blocks. And we sort of changed the policy about how trustees were made and this kind of thing. And before it was over, uh, there was a big riot in the jail, and nobody knew why. It seemed that we were not allowed to really solve anything ourselves. It was all doled out to us, piecemeal, tokenism. And when we got out of jail, all of us that had undergone this experience realized that this was the same way it was on the outside. In fact, it didn't really make any difference whether you were in jail or out. The bars were the same. All right. We were out of jail, and the women stuck together. During the time we were in jail, a number of firebombs got thrown in protest. They tried to blame it on black people, the people who had for so long suffered the indignities and the oppression and the exploitation by the white power structure. The only thing they could think to do was to arrest the people who were most militantly protesting the situation in Gainesville at the time, which they did. 
The women organized and harassed the hell out of the pigs. They had student help. A number of fire alarms got pulled. A number of phone calls were made in which the pigs just, you know, well, they couldn't use their phones anymore because the lines got all tied up. The analysis was that uh, since one of the students had gone to Cuba, that he had brought back Cuban sabotage techniques and were applying them against Gainesville power structure. And they predicted they were going to have a long, hot summer that summer. And they did. You know, it's funny how they always know they're going to have one. They plan it. Well, the subject of my talk was supposed to be how to control the police in the community. I don't think you can control them. It's part of a larger question. As to, as to how the power is going to be distributed. Are we going to let the pigs in the Pentagon send our men to Vietnam? Or are we going to organize and educate our sisters and engage in political struggles and, and resist? Or are we going to let stand by helplessly and cooperate in the repressive powers that are in the communities in our lives? No, we can't gain control in the present framework. We can only organize to resist the authority of the police and the courts, the courts which are the bulwark for the fascist exploiters. For too long, the victims of exploitation and repression and racism have been asked to pay the price to maintain a system which rewards and promotes the real criminals in society to positions of great wealth and power. Again, organize, organize, and resist. Power to the people. We have a very limited time, not because of chauvinism, but because of fascism. They want to put the lights out on them. Well, we can wrap in a dog. Banana dog, but we're coming out in a light, baby. This time, without further ado, I'd like to introduce to you from Welfare Rights Association here in Oakland, Sister Evelyn. Sister Evelyn Harris. Greetings, brothers and sisters. I'm here on behalf of you, my brothers and sisters. I'm here to speak to you in behalf of the poor people, which is welfare recipients. I want to talk to you about some of the experience as well as education I've had. I am the chairman of the Welfare Rights Organization. And our purpose is to help the recipient to gain their pride. 
and be as independent as anyone else. I have had the experience of working with the head of the welfare department, with private attorneys, legal aid, the district attorney, the probation office, and etc. You'd be surprised of the little knowledge that they know, especially the Board of Supervisor and the Welfare Commissioners. These are people that sit and make a budget for individuals to live on. For instance, I would take his, the budget for four, a family of four. Everyone talk about the taxpayers, the tax, the money coming out of their check. You'd be surprised what little money that a family receives to live on. And the DA is sit, they sit there, deprive the mother of her personal problems to expose her, to make her shame. But I want to let you know, as any of you in here, that have problems, that is on welfare, there is no shame. You have a right to that money as well as the head of the department, other social workers. First of all, we are asking that we have qualified social workers which can be replaced by recipients. Everyone, everyone that is on welfare is not ignorant. They have the knowledge to computer budget. They have the knowledge to interview people. And this is what we are trying to get over, that we, Welfare recipients sit on the Board of Supervisors, help compute the budget. Welfare recipients sit on the commissioners and help make the laws. Welfare recipients can live a decent life and be just as proud as the next working man. Also, I would like to speak briefly that the problems, I can go on and go on, but the time is limited. That we're having problems with the school, where the children in the school is branded because they are on welfare. The meal tickets that they receive, you'd be surprised at the food that they eat. And many of the children don't eat the food because it's not fitting. This is why that I will fight until I drop. Because no one else, I can challenge anybody in that welfare building, and I can do just as much as anybody else can do concerning the budget. Can no one live on a mother of four can live on a budget of 221? There's PG need to come out of there in your utility. That mother and one of those children are not being taken care of. This is the problem that we are faced with. And when they buy food or clothing, they pay tax on that. Because they are welfare recipients, they don't get nothing free. 
So they are taxpayers just like you or I. Anybody that works, they are taxpayers. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, sisters and brothers, while I can still read the lights on, our last speaker is none other than Sister Merlene Dixon, Doctor of Sociology, UCLA. Um, yeah, uh, we're short on time. And uh, I don't want to ego trip, but it's um, true that I have a gift for being stubborn, which the University of Chicago had uh, occasion to discover. Uh, which is not unrelated to a talent for, unpo for unpopularity either. And I can't make the uh, little talk that I was going to give tonight without saying something about what happened tonight. And I think that it's important for people to understand that white women have learned to be bitter and to be skeptical, and they have learned that from white, radical, male-dominated organizations. So tonight, I know that the majority of women moved not as provocateurs and not in bad faith, but they moved as militant women. And if you're not a militant woman, you don't belong in the revolution. But they acted out of their long experience with bad faith of white men. Yet, and this is important, if they acted wrongly with regard to the Black Panther Party, then let us forgive and understand one another so that we may have a trusting comradeship in a common struggle. Now, can I have a, four minutes? Okay, I'll try. Uh, I'll try four minutes. I wanted to, um, to talk about the rise of the women's liberation movement, and we'll see if we can beat the lights. The radical women's liberation movement was created by an international revolutionary movement and is part of it. It was created by the myth of freedom, which was destroyed by the reality of oppression. From the beginning, women fought beside the men in the struggle. She gave strongly and courageously to the cause of everyone's freedom. But very often in the past, it was for everyone else's freedom and never her own. Yet we all know that missionaries make untrustworthy revolutionaries. So it was of the greatest significance that women, and most particularly white women, began to wake up, began to see that they were oppressed. We, we are oppressed, the women cried, full of early rage at this astounding discovery. We are not free, we are exploited, we are used and told to be happy in our enslavement, in our inferiority, our so-called biological inferiority, which has to some of our ears a very familiar ring. And over all of us stands the white man. Racism so long blinded women, so long hid from the white woman the truth of her oppression. The white man hid from the white woman her great strength, her kinship, sisterhood with all others like her, 
with all the oppressed peoples of the world. The white man taught his women to be passive, to be sexy, to be stupid, to be lonely, to be reactionary, to be the bastion of racism and fascism. In fact, what Marx called a whore stood in the place of a living, vibrant, and precious human being, full of rage and love, strength and tenderness. Humanity will not be denied in revolutionary times, and these are revolutionary times. The humanity and dignity, the freedom of women, cannot be denied and will not be denied, for women no longer ask. Now women are ready to struggle for their freedom. One minute. Half. The path of women will move and must move then from that of the missionary to the revolutionary. Women must be made to disbelieve in their own inferiority and the acceptance of that. If they are ever to be set free and if in their just rage they are to become the new army, the new soldiers in the common struggle to destroy what is a corrupt and evil society and to construct what will be a just and free society. That is, they will be soldiers in their own right and against their own oppression. In this way, we may construct the steel bands of revolutionary comradeship. In this way, engage the battle for people fight best when they fight for their own freedom. Together, as equal comrades, recognizing the solidarity of all oppressed people, we shall withstand repression, we shall endure, and we shall win. Each seeming failure only ensures the strengthening of our people and the broadening of the struggle. Hardly an oppressed group today, including women, is without the dream of freedom or without the determination to struggle for it. As a very great woman, assassinated by the German government as a dangerous revolutionary, Rosa Luxemburg, once said, the history of revolutionary struggle is a history of failure, but you only need to win once, and we shall. All power of the people! And that does it for this week's From the Vault. You've been listening to an excerpt of a three-day Black Panther Party conference held in 1969. This particular part of it was called Women Speak Out Against Fascism. If you'd like to access the other parts of this conference, you can visit us online at pacificaradioarchives.org or call us in the archives at 1-800-735-0230. This program is written and produced by Mark Torres and Brian DeShazer with special help from Jolene Beiser for research. The series is executive produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives and your host, Brian DeShazer. From the Vault is presented as part of the Pacifica Radio Archives Preservation and Access Project, which is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, the American Archive, funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, past grants from the Grammy Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and partnerships with UC Berkeley's Moffett Library and from Pacifica Station members. Our theme music is by Kevin Drum Holiday. Thanks for listening and keeping our women's history alive.
Welcome back, and uh, that was an excerpt uh, from uh, the National Conference for United Front Against Fascism, held uh, July 18th through July 20th of 1969 in uh, Oakland, California. And that was a panel on women uh, speak out against fascism. And uh, we'll take a break, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. So 
as usual, I'll divide my uh, comments into three parts. First will be the epidemiological update, then what Africa CDC is doing. And in that, um, during that segment, I'll give, bring you up to speed on my visit to Morocco. That is the reason we didn't have a briefing last week. And then conclude with a, <clears throat> the vaccination situation before I turn it over to Amanda to uh, discuss the public health um, uh, and social measures that uh, we believe are so critical for us to continue to implement. So first of all, on the epidemiological situation, as of August uh, 26, this, that is uh, today, uh, 7.6 million Africans have been infected uh, by the COVID-19 uh, virus. And of that number, uh, about 6.7 million have actually recovered, and this represents an 88% uh, recovery rate. Unfortunately, 191,000 deaths have been reported across uh, the continent uh, with a case fatality uh, rate of 2.5%. And if you put that number of deaths in the overall context of the total mortality rate recorded since the start of this pandemic, it represents 4.3%. A couple of countries, as always, the top five countries that are, are bearing the most burden on the continent include South Africa with 36%, Morocco 11%, Tunisia 8%, uh, Libya 4%, and Ethiopia 4%. The, in terms of uh, where we are with the, the third wave and fourth wave, uh, as you recall, we mentioned last time that 69% um, of our member states, that is 38 countries, are now experiencing a third wave. 29 of those countries, or 76%, are experiencing a very severe third wave. And the definition of that is that the peak of the, the, um, the, the daily cases is higher than what we saw during the second wave. Uh, two additional countries, that is Angola and uh, Saharawi Arab Republic, have since become uh, additions to countries that are experiencing the, the third wave. Four countries, that is Kenya, Algeria, Somalia, and Tunisia, are now experiencing a fourth wave uh, across the continent. So no new addition has, uh, uh, additional country has added to the list of the countries that we indicated last time. <clears throat> so where are we with the variants? For the three countries are now reporting the, the alpha variant. One country, additional country, that is Eswatini, has now uh, been uh, added to the list of countries reporting the alpha variant. 37 countries are now reporting the beta variant with no new additions since the last time we discussed this. 32 countries on our continent and slight decrease there. The highest uh, proportion of new cases are coming from Southern Africa with 46%, North Africa 37%, East Africa 9%, West Africa 7%, and Central Africa 1%. In terms of deaths, uh, the continent has recorded over the last week 5,500 new deaths and this represents a decrease of 10% if you compare that to the previous week where we recorded 6,225 deaths. If we now look at the trends over the last four weeks, uh, we have the following observation. That is the week between 
July 26th and 22nd of August, uh, we have observed a slight decrease, a sl- uh, I beg your pardon, a slight increase over the last uh, four weeks of 0.3%, again, 0.3% slight increase. And the following trends uh, 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 have been observed in the region, 8% increase in Northern Africa, 8% increase in West Africa, 6% increase in East Africa, and 10% decrease in Central Africa, and 5% decrease in uh, Southern Africa. In terms of deaths, uh, if you look at the last four weeks, we have observed uh, a 4% average decrease in new deaths across the continent. <clears throat> For testing, as a continent, uh, we uh, have conducted 65 million cumulative COVID tests since the start of this pandemic, with 1.5 million new tests conducted uh, last week. And this represents a, a slight decrease of, of 4% compared to the other week where we had conducted 1.573 million tests. The cumulative uh, positivity rate still stands at 11.7%, uh, and a test per case ratio of 8.6. 25 member states, uh, 25% of our member states or 14 countries are now reporting a test positivity rate that is higher than 12%. 12%. So in, in, in terms of uh, new developments, we continue to support countries in several areas. Uh, one is to um, provide them assistance with uh, infection prevention and control measures, and also working uh, to improve uh, wash in healthcare facilities uh, by training a total of 1,900 uh, participants, uh, especially in anticipation of, of uh, in countries where the Ebola outbreak has been reported and the, the uh, Marburg hemorrhagic fever. Uh, two important announcements. One is that yesterday we did sign uh, a memorandum of understanding with the International uh, Federation for Red Cross and Red Christians, uh, abbreviated IFRC. This is uh, very important for us because we believe that uh, pandemics Will only end, this pandemic will only end if we work closely with the community. And IFRC has a very large um, community-based program. So we really want to partner with them to ex- uh, expand testing and also uh, see how we can use community healthcare workers to drive the vaccination programs. The second thing is just an announcement that uh, the Africa CDC will be hosting a One Heart conference uh, uh, on exactly on the 1st and 3rd of November this year, and really to promote the concept of One Heart. We know that more than 70% of our infections come from uh, animals. So we, this case uh, will be an opportunity for Africa CDC to continue to advocate for the need to strengthen One Heart, especially as this pandemic has taught us that we cannot do this in isolation. So before I go to the vaccine update, let me just uh, pause and give you uh, an update on my visit in uh, Morocco. I was in Morocco with a small team to meet with the Minister of Health officials as well as a Ministry or the Minister of Foreign Affairs. And I must say it was a very, very uh, in, in, impressive visit in several dimensions. One was to see how Morocco is 
expanding its vaccination program. In my view, uh, in terms of size, Morocco is the leading country now in Africa where they have administered 16 million uh, uh, first doses of vaccines in, in a population of about 25 million, million eligible uh, people that should get the vaccines. So that gives you more than 40% eligibility uh, uh, of people that have been vaccinated with the first dose. And if you look at their second uh, people that have received both doses, there are 12 million out of the about 25 million have received both doses there. So that puts Morocco around 45 to 50% of, of those that have received a double dose. Very, very encouraged. What was fascinating to me was um, the, how they have set up the vaccination centers across the country with a very uh, a tight program that is monitoring how things are going on in, in, in the countries. That is, uh, you could go into a command room and actually see in real time how the numbers of vaccinated people and how, uh, what kind of vaccines they were using. They're very, very impressed. So uh, they've done that with uh, using several approaches there. One is to develop, uh, was to, that they develop a public-private partnership arrangement uh, with the private sector, which was driving uh, the vaccination centers in Casablanca. And up north in Tangier, they, they were using the sports complex, the, the stadium. And you could see long lines of people meandering and winding uh, inside the stadium and outside the young people. That was really, I was impressed to see young people queuing for uh, hours and hours and lines to get them vaccinated. But there also there was a lot of innovation where they brought in uh, final year students in medical schools and nurses, uh, bring in the, the military doctors and the, 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 the Ministry of, of, of Sports to really work together using the whole of, of government approach to uh, scale up vaccination. So I think that is one of the lessons that we hope uh, that other countries in Africa, we can actually facilitate other countries in Africa to go to Morocco to see how uh, they are doing this. Because as I said, by population, they are way ahead of many countries in, in Africa. The second thing that was very impressive is the, the locally produced uh, COVID tests uh, that um, it takes just two hours to do a PCR test. And we really, we have actually uh, last year uh, participated in the validation of this test. And it is made in Morocco, made in Africa test. I can't be more proud of that. So we will be in the coming weeks, be working with them to see how we can procure uh, those tests and use them uh, across uh, multiple countries to support our program. The third thing that um, emerged today was really what they have done in terms of uh, producing um, locally public uh, uh, personal protective equipment in terms of masks and, and protective gowns that are certified. And they're actually exporting to Europeans, uh, some European markets there. It was very, we were very, very impressed with that. And what was even more fascinating was that in the coming weeks, they want to set up production sites in many countries, including in sub-Saharan Africa, including uh, in, in Cote d'Ivoire. We saw the machines that have been acquired and ready to ship to Cote d'Ivoire to set up um, a production sites there for mass, uh, mass that really made international standards. That was extremely encouraging. So we thought that was a very uh, productive visit, especially from the lens of what do we, how the continent is moving uh, overall 
continental average, as I would uh, explain, is very, very low. The average number of people that have received full vaccination, but Morocco is really an outlier. So that is a nice segue to discuss uh, vaccines. Where are we today on the continent? As of today, we have received 130 million COVID vaccine doses in 53 member states. And of that number, uh, we have administered 93.5 million uh, doses of vaccines, and which represents a consumption rate of about 72%. The overall coverage is, is, stands around 2.5%. That is people that have been fully vaccinated with the two doses. Again, uh, as I indicated, countries like Morocco, South Africa, Egypt, um, Tunisia, Nigeria, uh, begin to make a, a very good uh, progress there. Just uh, last week, the United States um, donation continues. The Kenya received 880,000 doses of, of, of the, the vaccines, uh, and that is the Moderna vaccine. And Togo received 180,000 <clears throat> doses of the Pfizer vaccine, and Rwanda received uh, about 489,000 doses of, of Pfizer vaccines. UK donations are also underway, where uh, Ghana has received 249,000 AstraZeneca vaccines, Angola has received 128,000 uh, doses, and Nigeria 700,000 doses. China donations uh, include uh, 200,000 uh, Sinovac donations to uh, Togo and 200,000 Sinopharm uh, donations to um, Rwanda. Uh, on the 23rd of August, Rwanda started the third phase of vaccination campaign targeting people over 18 years uh, old. I think that is a very, very encouraging experience. So let me just conclude by uh, uh, making a few remarks. That will be a segue to introducing um, uh, 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 Amanda, who, as I said, is uh, a vice president, senior vice president for a prevention, preventing epidemics for the resolve uh, to save life. The COVID-19 uh, is here with us, and unfortunately, uh, let me say that um, from the look of things, things will get more challenging before they get better, which means we have to begin to look at how we manage the pandemic in its totality and moving from an acute phase of the response to actually managing uh, managing it as a program. And, and why is this important? When uh, vaccines alone, especially given this, uh, the slow rate at which vaccines is being introduced on the continent, will not solve the problem for us. We have to use a combination approach where we promote the use of public health and social measures uh, to uh, begin to continue to avoid the occurrence of wave upon waves which are extremely damaging to uh, our economies and, and, and damaging to even our own ability to, to live uh, normally. So I think, um, as I indicated earlier, 30, uh, about 38 countries are currently experiencing a third wave. I have no doubt that uh, they will bring it down, uh, the, the, the peaks down, but then there will be other waves. But if we continue to implement the public health and social measures that Amanda will be uh, discussing, here today, I think we have a very good chance of identifying the, the hotspots uh, uh, that <clears throat> will become, <clears throat> excuse me, will become the, the subsequent wave on time to take action. I think that is extremely uh, important. 
So I think um, the partnership with Resolve to Save Life has been one of those critical um, aspects of our collaboration to implement our adapted uh, continental strategy, which if you recall on May the 8th, the ministers endorsed it, which speaks to the need for enhanced prevention, uh, enhanced monitoring and enhanced uh, treatment. So it is in that context that uh, uh, Amanda will be speaking to us about uh, the, what we abbreviate all the time as PHSM, which is public health and social measures, which will be critical in designing alert systems that can point us to where the hotspots are. And we do kind of what are called mini lockdowns rather than do national lockdowns or uh, regional lockdowns, which are becoming extremely devastating. So, um, Wayne, thank you. And over to you to introduce um, uh, Amanda. Thank you very much for that brief. Uh, that was Dr. Uh, John Kenasong, who is the director of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and uh, Prevention. Yes, indeed, we are joined by uh, Mrs. Amanda McClelland, and Amanda is the senior vice president of uh, prevention of epidemics at the Resolve Live Resolve Save Lives. So in that capacity as a senior uh, vice president, um, she leads the prioritization and planning of interventions and support in identified countries and regions with the view to strengthen the action packages in the prevention, detection, and response to epidemics. So Amanda, good morning, and it's over to you for your brief. Good morning and, and thank you so much uh, for the kind words and the collaboration with Africa CDC. I'm very pleased to uh, speak in more detail uh, around the PHSM framework that Resolve to Save Lives has developed in collaboration with the Africa CDC and the World Health Organization uh, on, on the continent to really support countries to use informed decision making. And as Dr. John mentioned, the, the idea that we need to manage COVID in the longer term is definitely here with us. And this idea of completely opening or closing down countries with very strict PHSMs is no longer an option like it was at the beginning of the pandemic. We can't really have officials just shutting down full societies, but rather we need layered policies that are appropriate for COVID um, control that manage the balance between uh, controlling transmission, keeping um, health facilities open and essential services open, and maintaining the economy. And so this is really why the PHSM tiered framework uh, is being proposed to member states to really use data and indicators at clear thresholds to be able to understand the amount of COVID in the country, help determine which policies countries should put in place, and really communicate that to communities so that, uh, as Dr. John said, with the IFRC, really mobilizing community members to adhere to those PHSMs and to cut the length of time those waves that are occurring in many, many countries right now. This approach was really adapted from some fantastic experience early in the pandemic by South Africa, who had a very clear alert level system we saw similar approaches applied in many countries, including New Zealand, who did it very, very well in the beginning of the outbreak, and were able to clearly communicate the different levels of PHSMs for their communities. So to speak more specifically about the PHSM framework, to be effective, it really needs to be clearly understood. Why are we using PHSMs and why did governments make decisions to open or close different policies? 
needs to be transparent so everyone knows why those decisions are being made. And to do that, it needs to be data-driven and practical. And as John said, really customized to the smallest geographical region. So we're really focused on where the COVID is rather than very large scale, uh, broad uh, policies. It needs to be collaborative. It needs to be in partnership with private sector and the government, as well as communities reinforced by strong legal and proper oversight and supported by wide dissemination of the information, which is really why we're talking to you today. The media plays an extremely important role in building trust and supporting clear evidence-based communication, helping governments and partners communicate not just what restrictions are in place, but how communities can protect themselves individually and as a community how they can adhere to those PHSMs and what they need to do to be able to reduce caseloads so that communities can get back to normal. Um, so we really hope that this new framework supported by Africa CDC and WHO will allow countries to take the lessons learned by many uh, countries already on the continent, apply data-driven decision-making and really find that balance in controlling the COVID waves, continuing to roll out the vaccine and helping manage the economic impacts that restrictions put in place. So I'm happy to, uh, in combination with Dr. John, take any questions and go through more detail around the framework. All right, uh, thank you very much uh, to our colleague there from Resolve to Save Lives. And that was uh, Mrs. Amanda McClelland. All right, it's time for us now to go to our question and answer section. Before we do that, let me give you the numbers or the contacts that you can use to send in your questions. The first one is that usual WhatsApp number, plus 251-94-550-2310. But today we have an alternative number in case you cannot get through to that uh, WhatsApp number. And uh, the alternative is a plus 251-904-139935. Let me give you that number again. Plus 251-904-139935. But you can come through live or utilize the question and answer section. All right, talking about coming through live, let's go live to our colleague in South Africa at the SABC, and that is uh, Sophie Mukwena. Good morning, Sophie. Please go ahead with your question. And that is uh, Sophie Mukwena. Good morning, Sophie. Please go ahead with your question. Thank you. Um, there are two questions, and the third one will be directed to your guest. The first one, Dr. Nkenkasong, the issue of vaccine hesitancy. Are we still having a problem on the continent or it is getting better? And then the second question to you again, Dr. Nkengasong, how far are we in terms of uh, reaching head immunity? And looking at the rate in which uh, we are vaccinating the population on the continent, do you think we will be able to reach that head immunity? And then the last question to your guest. You spoke about how South Africa was able to come up with a strategy or program or a plan to deal with COVID-19, considering all uh, issues uh, during phase one or maybe uh, first wave and second wave. 
And even now, I think it is the same at a time where they are now pushing a vaccination drive. And uh, our public broadcaster in South Africa, SABC, today having pop-up vaccination sites as part of uh, public service to the public and also to the continent. Why the numbers, much as South Africa is doing all that, why the numbers in terms of uh, COVID-19 cases is still high and we are still an epicenter? Even on issues of vaccination with all the initiatives, including today where the public broadcaster is also on the same uh, uh, campaign to assist ordinary South Africans and the uh, Africans on the continent in general. We are still not seeing numbers growing in terms of bringing down the deaths and the infections, but also vaccine uh, uh, re towards reaching that head immunity. Thank you very much, Sophie. Let's start with Dr. John. Thank you, Sophie, for, as always, uh, asking very um, tough questions, but very pertinent questions. Our, uh, based on what our observations and country-by-country uh, country observation, uh, the, the, our vaccine hesitancy situation is actually rapidly improving. And I've tweeted this uh, for those who uh, follow me on Twitter, I mean, with evidence showing long lines of people, uh, whether it's in Kenya or Rwanda or um, uh, Morocco. I, as I said last week, I was visibly emotionally shaken to see long lines of meandering young pe people, young uh, uh, men and, and women in a stadium in Morocco waiting patiently to be immunized. From country after country, Senegal, uh, Botswana, Malawi, uh, 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 they, they all, their issue now is give us the vaccines, not, what, not longer issues of whether they, are, uh, they, are, they should take the vaccine or not. So I think, uh, having said that, they continue to be and will always be small pockets of individuals that will um, continue to have doubts about vaccines. But uh, as I've said earlier, uh, the, the, uh, this week, let's all launch a campaign on what I call a social contract. Uh, a social contract, which means I am vaccinated to protect myself, to protect my loved ones, and to protect my community. And I also want to know my COVID status so that I can take personal action there. That kind of a social contract is so much needed now. We are in this for a very long haul, Sophie. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, I think, as I said earlier, the situation will get uh, uh, worse before it gets better. And we better pre pre prepare for a long haul by signing a social contract within ourselves that says that we have to take individual responsibilities and if vaccines are available, let's go get our vaccines there. But let me leave you on that with a very clear message that vaccines do not prevent you from being infected. Vaccines prevent disease and prevent that you are hospitalized or you die. I think this is very, very clear. I think less, I mean, and because of that, we have to take a long haul approach to this. And as Amanda said, uh, using a combination of public health and social measures together with vaccines is very important. We are not going to vaccinate ourselves out of this pandemic uh, anytime uh, sooner in the next one year or two years. Absolutely, Get based on what we know. Our knowledge of the virus is improving. 
But it's, again, we have to be humble to say that we still don't know what we need to know all about this virus there. Like when we started the vaccinations just a few months ago, we thought, uh, who knows, if you get vaccinated, the immunity lasts for several years. But we see that immunity wins and that uh, the, the vaccines are being challenged by the Delta variant there. So these are all new knowledge, new scientific knowledge that we need to factor in into what we are doing. Are we going to get to herd immunity? I doubt that we, that notion is irrelevant anymore. Herd immunity by simple definition is where you vaccinate a certain percentage of the population and that uh, people that have been vaccinated now become a shield where they prevent the transmission of, of the virus. The fact that today people that are vaccinated can still be infected and transmit the virus uh, to um, the, 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 the next person suggests that uh, that concept, again, it will be challenged by this virus. And that's what makes the virus uh, or the, uh, the situation very complex uh, to manage, unlike other viruses that, I mean, once you vaccinate a sizable proportion of the, uh, the, the population, you get rid of that. Uh, is Africa going to get uh, to that uh, uh, target? We started off saying that we should vaccinate at least 60% of our population uh, to achieve herd immunity. That was based on the science and the knowledge of the virus we knew at that time, which was last year, if you remember last August. Today, what do we know about this virus? The virus is, uh, especially the Delta variant, is more transmissible than the, the, the wild type that started this pandemic. Uh, uh, the arrow node, which is uh, the rate of reproduction of the virus is, uh, for the Delta variant, is about 8 uh, which is significantly different from where we started with an arrow knot of, of, of 2.5. So all of that changes the, the equilibrium on our need. If we ask us today at Africa CDC, where should we be to achieve uh, at least a, reason, a sizable protection of our community from getting, developing disease, I think we should be vaccinating in excess of 70 to 80% now. Another uh, uh, um, new information and, and knowledge that is emerging is that the young people are now getting sick. And uh, when this pandemic started, if you recall, young people were infected, but they just moved around. But now they are getting sick, and we are seeing that in hospitals. So we continue to see, we continue to learn more about this virus, and based on the new knowledge, we continue to adjust our strategies. Thank you very much. Over to you, Amanda. Uh, thank you so much, and thank you for the question on South Africa. I mean, given that I'm not there in the country, I'd be reluctant to, to dig into the details. I think the, the public <clears throat> health teams in South Africa have been doing a fantastic job from the outside. But at least as we look across the continent and why South Africa continues to have uh, what looks to be higher rates than many other countries, I think is multifaceted. Although they have uh, used PHSMs very effectively, they have turned them on and off. So as caseloads come down, they have opened back up for economic reasons, uh, rightly so, and they have seen increases in cases once the, the measures come off, and then they're using those again as the, the caseloads get up. So they have had three very distinct waves. They do have a higher median age than many other countries across the continent, which has perhaps led to those higher death rates. They also have higher prevalence of non-communicable diseases than those other comorbidities that we've seen really impact uh, infection and death rates. And it has to be said, they have much better testing than many other countries on the continent, which perhaps increases their reporting rates. But when you compare South Africa globally, uh, obviously in the, in the Africa context, it looks much higher than many other countries. But when you compare South Africa 
against similar countries globally, they are uh, very similar rates or even lower rates than, than other countries. So I do think they've done a good job at communicating when and how to use PHSMs, but those economic impacts make it very, very hard to maintain them in the long term. And we have seen very distinct waves of uh, social measures used uh, in South Africa. Thank you very much for that. Uh, we move on now and we have Sarah Kimani who is coming to us live. And um, I believe Sarah is in Nairobi and also representing the SABC. Sarah, good morning. Please go ahead with your question. Good morning, Wayne, and thank you uh, for having me. I wanted to uh, find out from uh, Dr. Nkengerson, when you look at the data that you are receiving in terms of uh, the number of infected, the number of deaths, and even the number of vaccinated, how would you rate it? Are you finding uh, that uh, among us in the continent, the countries that are well-developed are probably keeping their data better, and so it is uh, possible that even the numbers that you give us every day may not be the true reflection of actually what is happening on the continent. Uh, secondly, um, Kenya is among the countries that have uh, overtly, covertly uh, introduced vaccine mandates, at least for the civil servants. And we know also of uh, uh, offices that are now... Welcome back. And uh, that was a uh, briefing from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, headed by Dr. John Nkengasong. Uh, that was a uh, briefing from two days ago. And uh, that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast Program uh, for today. Uh, today is Saturday, August 28, uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We would like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, to our program for uh, today. And uh, we have uh, had a focus uh, on a myriad uh, of issues, uh, developments on the African continent, of course, uh, recognition of uh, Black August, uh, which, of course, has been in existence now for uh, some 40 two years, and uh, also uh, that uh, briefing, excerpts from the briefing uh, from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, from just uh, two uh, days ago. And if you're interested in uh, having access uh, to today's program, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. By logging on to uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal, not only can you have access to today's program for Saturday, August 28, 2021, but well over a 1,000 other archived editions of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And, of course, uh, if you'd like to read uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Newswire website, and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. This is uh, our goodbye uh, for today, and uh, we're going to close out uh, with the legendary Eric Dorsey uh, from the album entitled 
for a cry. This is Abayomi Azikaway signing off and have a beautiful week. Thank you.